0: If you have a Bible, jump to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be this morning, continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm going to read a little bit for us, pray for us one more time, and we will jump in. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right, you turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him at two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much that we can gather around your word to worship you, both in the songs that we sing and in the, in, in the opening up of your word. Thank you for Tom and Nona, a life, lives well lived that we get to celebrate. So Lord, I pray that you would, um, as you would, as we open your word, you would open up our hearts to be guided that we might be the people you want us to be in this place so that more people might know your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, retaliation is a common theme in our culture. Uh, I was looking at Amazon. There was a book, and it was entitled this. Don't Get Mad, Get Even, the Big Book of Revenge. And it gives over 200-plus pranks you can play on those people that have, have wronged you in some way. But not just in our literature, also in our music. Uh, There's a song by Carrie Underwood uh, entitled Before He Cheats, and it says this. I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. And as I, you read those lyrics, you're like, okay, this isn't about justice, right? Like, this is about something else going on here. This isn't about um, setting a wrong right. This is about revenge. This is about retaliation. But also in our movies. Um, there's a movie that came out several years ago called The Count of Monte Cristo. It's based on a book. And in that book, a man was arrested uh, for something that that he did not do, and he was sent into prison and finally escaped. And the rest of the movie is kind of the play out of the playback, of payback, of of his desire to retaliate on those people that had wronged him. I mean, those themes of retaliation run deep within our culture. And Ravi Zacharias famously quotes um, Andrew Fletcher, an 18th century Scottish. Um, politician when he says, give, give me the making of, a, of the songs of a nation. I do not care who writes its laws. And what that quote is reflecting is that the art reveals the heart of a nation. If we look at the art of a nation, its literature, its music, its movies, we actually see what is at the heart of a people, at the heart of a nation. And when you read these books, you see very clearly that, that payback is a common theme in our culture, getting even, getting revenge. But the question is, does revenge work? Like, if someone has wronged you, and you, get, you desire to get back at them for whatever reason, does it actually even work? Well, that's why I love to read psychological journals, or at least portions of them, because psychologists, particularly at universities, they get to test out these theories. They get to ask the question, does revenge actually work? And so they set up a scenario um, to see if revenge actually makes people feel better about their situation. And so how do you do that? And I love the fact that these psychologists sit around and go, hey, how can we make people bitter at one another and want to avenge one another? That's just a fun job, I guess. Um, And so they set up this scenario where if everyone pooled their money together that's invited into this experiment, uh, everyone would get like $2 more for for their services. But if one person chooses to not help but to like be self-serving, um, they would get more money than everyone else. And so they set this experiment, but they also put in that experiment a plant. One person whose job it is to get everyone to agree, hey, let's all pool our money together, that'll be good, and then to uh, abandon that and get more money and walk out. Right. So they, they set up this social experiment, they set up this thing, this person then deceives everyone, walks out with more money, and then they get another opportunity. They get another opportunity to have this experiment play out again, and they say, okay, now, as a group, you guys can enact revenge on this other person. And here's what they said in the study. Carl Smith says, the leader of the study, virtually everybody was angry over what happened to them. And everyone given the opportunity for revenge took it. And then he gave them a survey afterward to see how they would feel regarding the revenge that they had taken. And what was fascinating is that no one felt better about themselves. In fact, they discovered just the opposite that revenge stoked deeper feelings of anger in their hearts. And it didn't trivial, trivialize the event, it made the event even more frustrating to the people. He says this rather than providing closure, it does the opposite, it keeps the wound open and fresh. What he's saying is if you seek revenge on others, it won't make you feel any better about yourself. In fact, it will do the opposite. Those flames of resentment that you harbor won't make you love these people better. In fact, it will just become a festering wound. And the reason we start there is because that's what Jesus is addressing in this section. He's addressing a tendency in people to enact revenge. And he does it at the beginning of this passage by talking about a law that the people had from the Old Testament. And the law is this in verse 38. It says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that, that phrase, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, um, it has a Latin phrase to it. It's called lex talionis. I want you to feel like you learned something today. All right? So it's lex talionis. So what lex talionis means is um, justice. Meaning the punishment should fit the crime that you shouldn't be punished over what you have committed. And so when, when Moses is writing um, the book of Exodus, as God is directing Moses to write this, these texts, the goal is to restrain vengeance. Because what often what would happen in the culture, in fact, in many of the communities at that time, is that if, something, if someone was wronged in some way, the other people would want to pay back. And so one person took one person's sheep And instead of going and saying, hey, give me my sheep back or give me another sheep in compensation, they would say, I will go then take 10 of your sheep and everything escalates. And that was normal in their culture. When everything would escalate, there'd be blood feuds and vengeance. And Moses is establishing a nation with new values. And he says, look, I don't want blood feuds and vengeance to be a part of our community. I want the punishment to fit the crime. And he quotes, um, Jesus quotes even Exodus 21, 23, where it says this. But if there is harm, then you shall pay back life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And that wasn't uh, a way to say, hey, if they get you, you get them back. What it's saying is you can't escalate justice. You can't go beyond a certain limit. Leviticus 24 says it this way. Whoever takes a human life shall be put to death, but whoever takes an animal life shall make good life for life. If anyone injures a neighbor, he shall, um, that has done him injury, uh, f- that, that balance it, fracture for fracture. But, but what would happen is if someone, like, poked out your eye, you wouldn't go poke out their eye. They would say, is there something comparable? Like, if you've been wounded or hurt, don't exacerbate the situation. John Piper writes it this way, God gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from man's evil heart. He says the law is supposed to be there to restrain that, that desire to just do wrong to that person who did wrong to you. But, um, theologian McNeil says this, it limited revenge by fixing sin and exact compensation for the injury. So the purpose was to restrain sin or restrain retaliation. But here's what was happening in the Pharisees' um, existence. In this uh, teaching in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting what what the intent of the law was with the practice of the Pharisees. He says what the Pharisees would basically do is they would go demand retribution for every wrong they felt. They say, if you've wronged me, you must do this other thing. And so what the Pharisees were doing was applying this um, across everything. And Jesus says, no, you missed the intent of the law. The purpose was to restrain that desire for violence and vengeance, and you're taking it in another direction. In verse 39, he says this, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That word resist in Greek means uh, to defend oneself or to take aggressive action against someone else. He says, I, I'm asking you not to resist, meaning to defend your rights or take aggressive action on someone else. I'm telling you, don't, don't push back on that person that has hurt you. Now, what is this not applying to? This section is not rep- applying to governments at large. It is not uh, communicating pacifism. Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and I would encourage you to pick it up. You can get it on Amazon or other places, And he says this, this teaching, which concerns Christian individuals and nobody else, applies to him only in his personal relationships and not to his relationship as a citizen of a country. So what he's saying is this, um, the actions that Jesus is addressing is not national policy or our policies as a nation to other nations. What he is saying is, as you as an individual are in circumstances where someone has wounded you personally personally. Or hurt your feelings, or done the things that we're going to talk about, he says, I want you to have a completely different heart attitude. He is calling them to let love be your primary ethic. I want love, Jesus says, to be your primary ethic. He wants a posture of the heart that is not about retaliation, retribution, or vengeance, but he wants a posture of the heart that is peaceful, that is open handed that is helpful and generous. Peaceful when your reputation is attacked. Open-handed when you're in relationships. Helpful in response to government. And generous to everyone you interact with. And so the first one that he addresses is this peacefulness that he desires for us to have. Verse 39, it says, But I want you, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn and offer him the other also. What's going on there? Well, slap was a sign of public humiliation. It was often done with the back of the hand. And what he's saying is like, when, if someone was to slap you across the right cheek, meaning they were to humiliate you in public, what is your response? What is your response from your heart in that situation? And what Jesus is not referring to is issues of personal safety or the protection of others. This situation is about public humiliation. It's not primarily about personal safety or the protection of others. There's other verses that address those issues when someone is attacked and physically being um, abused or, or hurt. That's a different context. We're mainly talking about the issue of public humiliation. And he's asking the question, men and women, what is your heart attitude when you're publicly humiliated? Well, as a culture, we can answer that question. Just turn to Twitterverse, right? Like if we were to go to the world of Twitter and say, what is our natural response when someone hurts our reputation via those 120 characters? What do we do? We're like, oh, I see that you've noticed a failure in my character. I am, thank you for pointing that out. And we respond in a gracious way. Is that what your experience on Twitter is? No, no. You're like, you hurt me with 120 words, I've got 120, and then a couple more along the way that I'm gonna go back to you. Facebook's the same way. Only you have no limit on your words, right? Someone is upset about something, instead of going to the person and saying, hey, I'm upset with that, that you let your dog out in the neighborhood, we go onto our Facebook little world and we're like, I will tell you how I feel about all of you know," and, just, and you know Facebook is a great place to voice opinions and have reasonable dialogue and conversation about issues that hurt you, right? False. Like, it's where everything escalates, right? It's where everyone says, I have an opinion and I have an opportunity. Like that's how we treat those things. And instead of moving to help someone work through an issue, we escalate it quickly. And if someone hurts our reputation in one of, those, one of those formats, oh, we're on the attack. We're ready to defend ourselves, defend our friends, everyone. We're just on the attack. Peter says of Jesus in First Peter 2, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges judges justly. See the posture of Jesus' heart? He says, I actually believe that God's in control of my reputation. I actually believe that God will defend me better than I can defend myself. I actually believe that God controls and loves me and my life, and actually, I'm entrusting myself to him. And I'm not gonna call down fire on people. I'm going to wait for the Lord to judge justly in this situation. But our culture is inflammatory when it comes to these issues. In fact, uh, it's always been that way. In fact, I'm gonna read you some quotes from a former, um, uh, said about a former president. um, Said this of him. George Templeton Strong was a prominent New York lawyer. He said, This person is a barbarian, a Yahoo, and a gorilla. Henry Ward Beesner of, um, of The Independent said this that he is an unshapely man. He was called a coward, an idiot, a gorilla by the commander of the army. One Ohio uh, Republican said of him, He is universally and admittedly a failure. He has no will, no courage, no executive capacity, and his spirit necessarily infuses itself downward through all of his departments. He says, this guy is not worth leading. In fact, Charles Sumner, a Republican senator, said of him, there is a strong feeling among those who have seen him at at work that he has no practical talents for his important place. It is thought that there should be more readiness and more capacity for government. A uh, senator from Maine said this, he is as weak as water. You know who they're referring to? Abraham Lincoln. In fact, after he uh, spoke the Gettysburg Address, the Gettysburg Address, what is now um, at the Lincoln Memorial, it's, it's on the Lincoln Memorial. After he gave those words four score and seven years ago and following, a Pennsylvania newspaper said, We pass over these silly remarks of the president. For the credit of the nation we are willing, this veil of oblivion shall be dropped over them and they shall be repeated and thought no more of. The London Times said anything more dull and commonplace it wouldn't be easy to produce. Criticism has been a part of every one of our leaders' lives. Criticism. Lobbying attack at these people. And, And people ask Lincoln, like, why don't you defend yourself? Like, why don't you speak back against these people that are saying this? In fact, one of his army officers asked him, "Um, President Lincoln, why don't you respond to these critics? He says this, if I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well close its doors for business. I do the very best I can, and I, I do the very best I can, and I mean to keep on doing that until the end. If the end brings me out all right, What is said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, ten angels swearing that I was right wouldn't make a difference. Oftentimes, people would say, "Hey, here's another attack that's been levied at you. This has been something that's been written about you, Lincoln," and he would often wave it off and say, "Let's speak of other matters now." He would move on. He would not attack. Billy Graham. He was uh, in the middle of his London revivals in 1966. And there was over a million people from London that came to his revivals and he received criticism as part of that London revival. And they said to him, uh, they said, look, he plays this song at the end of every one of his revivals uh, and it's the song, Just As I Am. And it was commonplace. He would play the song at the end of uh, of his message and it was a time for people to respond. And he was criticized. They basically said, hey, he's playing on people's emotions. And so what did Billy Graham do? He stopped playing the song." And so he finished his sermon, gave people an opportunity to respond to the gospel, and he said, specifically, we will not play a song at the end of this. But if you want to come forward to receive Christ, come on down. And he stood back from the pulpit, and there's about 15 seconds of silence. And then suddenly there's one squeaky chair that went, the person came forward, and another squeaky chair. Was, Keep, keep going forward. And for the next 30 days of these services, he did not play the song to end it. In fact, it became so awkward. One reporter writes, when the reporters began to write about the invitation at Earl's Court, they said, all they heard was the shuffling of feet on the floor. Mr. Burroughs wrote, bring back just as I am. The silence is killing us, right? <laughs> and so in that moment, he's like, hey, if you're going to criticize me, that's, that's fine that's fine. Maybe your criticism is valid. I will, I will take back and I will move forward. I will turn the other cheek when you are criticizing me. I'm not going to defend my reputation. I'm going to let God. So the first issue is this. Are we, are we willing to go with peace and not conflict? Secondly, are we going to be open-handed specifically in the area of litigation? And here's the question on the next one. Am I willing to preserve relationship as primary? Jesus says it this way. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the tunic was the undergarment. The undergarment. So he's basically saying, like, your underwear. Like, if someone's going to sue you for your underwear, give them your cloak as well. The cloak was the outer garment. And it was interesting, in the Old Testament, there were, there were rules on what you could sue a person for. So if someone had an issue with you, what you could do is give them your outer cloak um, as kind of like compensation of, hey, I'm gonna pay you back. You hold on to my cloak until I'm able to pay you back. But there was a limit on how long they could hold that cloak. In Exodus 22, it says this, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering and the cloak of his body. Um, What else shall he sleep in if you keep it from him? So there was a limit that God set in Exodus for for how long you could hold that thing from that person. And Jesus says, hey, look, look, look. If someone is suing you and they want something from you, you be open-handed with what you have. You give them your cloak and you take on your undergarments and you give it to them. That's crazy. I mean, literally, the shirt off your back. Like, You just give them the shirt off your back. And what's fascinating is Jesus is trying to communicate a principle. I want you to live open-handed with your possessions. And if you're being sued, what's your heart attitude as you walk into that moment? Do you want justice or do you want vengeance? Are you looking to care for this person or are you just looking to beat them down? My wife and I used to watch the TV show Suits. And so it's about these high-powered New York attorneys uh, that were... That They would start by representing this client, right? And so this client would have an issue, and they would feel bad about the issue, and so they'd start by representing that client. But inevitably, as the, as the storyline went on, um, some, the opposing attorney would say something that infuriated like, one of these guys in suits, and so they would be like, okay, I'm going to defend my client, and I'm going to beat you. And like, so pretty soon, each episode became not about helping this hurting person. It became about a sparring match of me beating them down, of me like showing I'm better than you. Like, and, and so in each episode, you see like this play out. Like it went from helping the hurting to I'm gonna beat you for Jesus. Like it just became this weird, this weird environment over and over and over again throughout the entire show. And, and what Jesus is saying is like, look, when you walk into moments when someone may have wronged you or you're defending the rights of another, how do you walk in there? Are you about I'm going to fight for my rights and beat you in the process, are you walking in with love? Are you asking yourself the question, what does love require in this moment? When I was in College Station a couple years ago, I was, I was driving and I was at a uh, stoplight and I got rear-ended. And I was so mad. I was like, "Ugh." Oh. Did you not see the light? We're all stopped here. And, and you hit me. I was so frustrated. And, and I pull over off to the side and I pull into this parking lot. And, and, I, and I'm in that moment kind of thinking about, okay, what am I gonna say? How am I gonna approach this moment? And, and the person pulls up beside me, behind me. and gets out of the car and it's this, this 18-year-old college freshman just crying. And I'm like, oh, this little girl. And so I get out of the car and I was like, you better pay. No, no. <laughs> what did I say? The first thing I said was, are you all right? Are you okay? Yeah, there was some damage. Yeah, there were some things that needed to be fixed. But what that girl needed in that moment wasn't someone to point out where she was wrong. She needed compassion. She called up her parents. It all worked out. Da, 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 da. But, I mean, just, just how do we respond in those moments? Are we moved with compassion and love? Is there something else? Thirdly, Jesus addresses the situation of when we're interacting with government. The question is this, am I willing to be helpful? He says this in verse 41. And if one one forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, culturally, what's happening um, is is that the the nation was under Roman rule. And the Romans had soldiers that would be traveling all over the empire and they would be carrying these heavy loads. And there was moments when these soldiers were going and everyone actually in the Roman empire was, it was kind of forced oppression, forced labor. So you had to be a soldier and so one of the ways to compensate the soldiers that had to do this was to say, hey, well, you can, as you're walking along, if you see someone there, you can make them carry your luggage and, or carry your baggage. So they would carry their baggage um, whatever distance. So they could go one Roman mile. That was the limit, which is equivalent to about a thousand paces. And at one level, we could be like, oh man, you get to help the military? That's awesome. I mean, we've all watched like police TV shows where, you know, a police officer gets knocked out. There's a bad guy running away and he sees some citizen on a sweet motorcycle and is like, give me your bike. And the citizen's like, okay, officer. You know, he jumps on and goes and helps and saves the day. Like we've seen moments like that. We're like, maybe it's that moment, but it actually wasn't that moment at all. It was actually offensive and an irritant that this soldier would, would make me carry his luggage for this distance. These packs these soldiers had to carry were as heavy, were heavy and it could weigh as much as 100 pounds. And they had to carry that 100 pound pack for a thousand paces. I want you to think about it a moment. When the government asks you to do something that you don't want to do, what is your heart reaction? Kevin, you're meddling. I know, it's going to get worse. All right. When you're asked to pay your taxes, what's your heart position? Thank God that I can pay for roads and help make a better nation or oh, you're not getting my money. When you're asked to do jury duty, when you get that slip in the mail, do you like a chance to serve as a citizen? Yes, yes. I can be a part of bringing justice to my community. Like, do you have that mentality? Or is it like, great, now my life is ruined. Like, what, what is your heart reaction? That's my heart reaction. Like, what are you doing? Like, it... or thirdly, someone told me after the first service I was brave to give this example. Let me read this one more time. These packs these soldiers had to carry were heavy. They could weigh as much as 100 pounds, And they had to carry them for a thousand paces. And Jesus says, don't go with them one mile. Go with them two. Go above and beyond what they're asking. Can you imagine an oppressive government asking you to do something so heinous, so wrong, that they would demand such a thing of you as to wear a mask? I've watched video clips of people getting in fistfights in stores over this. And Jesus says, if they ask you to carry a 100-pound pack, a 1,000 yards, you go with them too. Oh, that's a high calling. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want to love our government like that. We don't want to ask the question, what would love require? We will ask the question, how can I help you? We say, what are my rights? And you better get off of them. But Jesus says, I want you to have a heart attitude that says, how can I help? What do you need from me as a citizen? How can I lean in? Move off that one. Number four. Number four, that we would have a generous spirit. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What is your attitude when someone asks you for something? Inevitably, whenever I drive at a -A, Chick-fil-A, I I will have my chicken sandwich, I will have my fries, I will have my Sprite, and I will drive at a Chick-fil-A and there will be someone there who is uh, there with a sign asking for money or, or something, What is your heart attitude when you're confronted with that reality? Is yours, oh, there's someone to help. In fact, I literally had some friends that would buy Chick-fil-A gift cards, like $5 gift cards, and when they would go in that moment, they would just hand it out to those individuals. I'm like, you are a saint. I can't believe you would do that. Um, But when I'm driving by, if I'm honest with myself, I go, I want my sandwich, I want my fries. I'm so sorry you don't have any. And I have to check my heart. To say, Lord, am I, am I holding on to what I have? Or am I willing to be generous? Do I have a posture toward generosity? Does it mean I give every single time? No, it doesn't mean that. We actually have a whole benevolence department here, um, led by the niches and others, to help with, with, with that as well. How do we love people well? But I'm asking a different question. What's my heart posture when I'm asked to give? When someone has to borrow something or or someone is begging for something, what is my heart posture? God's heart posture is one of generosity. He gives. He gives. Matthew 5 45, we'll look at it next week. He says this for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is one who gives those that are ill deserving. God is the one who is generous for those that would never even love him. He gives rain on those who curse his name. He gives breath to those who do not love him. He gives success to those who will use success in a negative way. He gives talents to those who will use those talents, not in the way to lift up the name of Jesus, but to lift up their own names or bad agendas. He gives and gives and gives. God has a posture toward generosity. What's your posture? What's your heart? And as I look at these four things, I just want to kind of narrow it down to some simple applications for us to boil it down to some simple ideas. The first is this, peaceful. When I'm under personal attack, am I willing to respond in peace? So when I'm on my Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, Am I approaching that avenue to spread peace? Secondly, open-handed. When I'm dealing with relationships, maybe they're in court, maybe they're in some like fender bender, I don't know what, what the situation is, but when you're in this moment, are you walking into that place and asking the question, what would love require of me here? Thirdly, am I helpful? When interacting with government or other agencies, what is my heart posture? Am I asking the question, What would love demand? Fourthly, am I generous? When someone asks to borrow something, do I lead with generosity? Do I lead with generosity? Now, can you imagine a community that actually lived this out? Like a community that led in peace, open-handedness, helpfulness, and generosity. I mean, that's what Jesus is trying to create He's saying, this is my people. This is what I want them to be like. This is how I want them to respond. In every environment that they land in, I want them to be these types of people. But with our honors with ourselves, I'm not that type of person. And I need the work of Jesus Christ to save me. It says of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. It says Jesus, when, when he was spoken bad against, you know what he did? He entrusted himself to God. Are you entrusting your life to God? Are you looking to retaliate? See, the reason that we can live a new life isn't ultimately because we want to, it's because Jesus Christ came for us. And when he was being wounded, you know what his words were? Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. When he was being hurt, he blessed. We we need to be people that say we're going to let love reign in our relationships. And instead of wounding in return, we give love in return. We overcome evil. It's Good. So I don't know where your heart is, but we can't be this type of people if we don't first come to the feet of Jesus Christ. And he can alone and change us from the inside out that we might live the life he's calling us to live. So have you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... Have you believed in him? And those of you who have, have you gone through and said, all right, Lord, how then shall I live? Help me to be the type of man or woman you want me to be so that we might make a better impact on this world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us your word and you've given us an extremely high calling um, to be people that love radically And Lord, I pray that we could be men and women that study your word deeply, but more than study your word deeply, that we would allow that word to penetrate the depths of our hearts. And I know, Lord, that there's been things that have said this morning that have rubbed some of us the wrong way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, um, Spirit, convict us where we need conviction. Help us to be loving, Christ-filled, Spirit-filled people that the world might know that we're your disciples, Jesus, by the way that we love one another and the way that we love them. So in your name we pray, amen.